Hey, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime. Welcome to our latest podcast where I have with us today a very special guest and someone that I think a lot of folks um, have probably read before, Dr. Carol Gilligan. She's an American developmental psychologist best known for her research into the moral development of girls and women and her work has been credited with inspiring the passage of the 1994 Gender Equity and Education Act. She's the author of the landmark book, In a Different Voice, which I have right here, Psychological Theory and Women's Development. That was published in 19, 1982, excuse me, and currently she teaches uh, at NYU. She received her PhD in social psychology from Harvard, um, working with Florence Kohlberg and Eric Erickson. And this is her latest book, which I just finished last week, um, Why Does Patriarchy Persist with Naomi Snyder. And I have to say, uh, it is quite amazing. And um, I really appreciate all she has to say in there. And she's going to talk more about it today. So welcome, Carol. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Francesca. My pleasure. It's really, it's really um, an honor, and 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 I so enjoyed this book, and um, I could maybe sum it up in a nutshell, maybe. Please. And and, and then you tell me. Um, sure, sure, sure. Um, because I love how you weave in the politics, you weave in the psychology, you weave in the sort of you know social constructs and everything. That that really the patriarchy as a hierarchical structure is sort of a defense, a pre guarding, a pre guarding, if you will, against loss or, mm. or, or against perceived loss. And that um, we kind of get caught in these structures because we, um, we're afraid to be vulnerable to love um, and, and we're sort of trying to protect ourselves. And so, uh, so we get caught up in this structure and then it perpetuates a whole host of things that, that can be really problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Great summary. <laughs> I mean, the history of the book, the book has an interesting history, which was, <clears throat> I was teaching a seminar with a colleague at NYU, he, he is a law professor, and our seminar was called Resisting Injustice. Why do people resist injustice? What encourages a resisting voice and what suppresses a resisting voice? So I think this was 2014. And we had a student in our seminar and she had come to NYU from London, from the London School of Economics. And uh, in the week that we read my book, The Birth of Pleasure, which is the first of the books of mine, I had written that book after, first I did the work leading to In a Different Voice. Uh, really, which the title is that Listening to women's voices changes the voice of the conversation about ethics and politics and human development and so forth. And then I spent 10 years with my students doing research with girls and particularly girls narrating their experiences in coming of age. You know, so girls starting with seven and eight year olds and moving to adolescence and then, um, as girls reached adolescence, they were really up against something that was encouraging them. Um, and I think you'll appreciate this, to separate <clears throat> their thoughts from their emotions, their minds from their bodies, themselves, their honest voices from their relationships. Um, and they resisted making these separations. I mean, this one 13-year-old said, I'm going to lose my mind. I mean, wow. in other words, I'm going to lose being in touch, being able to think about my feelings, like my thoughts connected to my feelings and my, my embodied mind, basically. I mean, the, she said the mind is connected, this is a 13-year-old, to your heart and your soul and your internal feelings and your real feelings. And wow. she contrasted her mind with her brain, which she said is in your head and connected to your intelligence and your smartness and your education. Amazing. And she said, she was amazing. She said, children have the most mind, little children, because they don't have much of a brain. <laughs> I love that. Children have the most mind because they don't have much of a brain. Beautiful. I mean, mind meaning it's in touch with your heart and your soul and your, and she said, but in at the course of growing up, 
you know, you can forget your mind because so much is her trace shoved at you into your brain. Mm-hmm. So the, it was really seeing girls' resistance to making separations that would undercut basic human capacities, such as empathy and cooperation and mutual understanding. And so in 2002, I wrote this book called The Birth of Pleasure. And I mean, the title comes from the end of the Cupid and Psyche myth, which ends with the birth of a daughter named Pleasure. And it was a myth, I thought, that was a resistance to basically girls coming of age and losing touch with their, their voice, their, their feelings and so forth. And for the first time in 2002, I named what I thought girls were up against as patriarchy, meaning an order of living that forced the separation of human, human qualities into either masculine, see this, the ones were mind, self, reason, or feminine, and emotions, these are human capacities, were seen as feminine, and then elevating the masculine over the feminine. So it was the first time I named what I thought girls were up against and why they were resisting this. So back to my class in 2014, and here's Naomi. She's a human rights lawyer, and she's come from LSE to NYU. And the week that in the seminar we read my book, The Birth of Pleasure, Naomi wrote a paper that <laughs> I think the technical term is blew my mind. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you liked it. A student does work that's just eye-opening. And she began her paper by writing about the loss, the death of her father when she was five years old. And she talked about how after the death of her father, she was really afraid of further loss. So she was, even though... She, like all of us, she wanted love. Every, we all want to be loved. We all want to love and be loved. She was reluctant to actually expose herself to the vulnerability of loving because of fear that, again, she would experience loss, like her father's death. So then she read my book, The Birth of Pleasure, and I talked about girls reaching adolescence. And... I mean, a quote from that study, this is a 16-year-old who was the valedictorian or 17-year-old of her high school class and got into every college she applied to and said, if I were to say what I was really feeling and thinking, no one would want to be with me. My voice would be too loud. Mm. And then she said, but you have to have relationships. And I said to her, but if you're not saying what you're really feeling and thinking, then where are you in these so-called relationships? Right. So Naomi said that what she thought was just her problem because of the death of her father, which was a a reluctance to really enter into relationships because of this fear of loss, was what girls were describing as part of what they were facing coming of age. And so she wrote this paper and she said, does patriarchy persist in part? not only because people with privilege are reluctant to give up their privilege and power, but because it's a defense against loss, because patriarchy is a hierarchy. I mean, democracy is equal voice. And you have to have equal voice if you're going to deal with conflicts in relationships, whether it's your personal relationships or whether it's a democracy. Depends on everyone having a voice. Patriarchy elevates the voices of fathers. So it elevates the voices of some men over other men and all men over women. So basically, girls were being initiated where they were told, if you want to have relationships in a world basically that elevates the voices of fathers, you have to silence. You can't say what you're feeling and thinking. You can't say what you know from your own experiences. So she said it was patriarchy which forces loss to set up hierarchy was patriarchy did a persistent part because it served a psychological function. Just what you said, it protects us against the vulnerability of loving. So I thought, that's amazing. I had not thought of that. Mm. So I said, Naomi, you know, let's work together. 
And so she stayed the next year and worked with my colleague, David Richards, and myself. <coughs> Excuse me. We taught the seminar together. And then I was asked to give a talk at the William Allenson White Institute. This is now the fall of 2016. So I said to Naomi, why don't we give the talk together and we'll present this thesis. And we called our talk, The Loss of Pleasure, or Why Are We Still Talking About Oedipus? Which we said is a tale of male violence and female silence. It's the quintessential patriarchal story. Why? And we said, because patriarchy persists. That's why we keep telling the story. So our talk here brings you back to what you were talking about. Our talk was scheduled for the week after Trump's election. And, you know, as I told you, we thought people would say patriarchy. That's so over. I mean, that's in anthropology. By this point, patriarchy was appearing on the pages of the New York Times. So <laughs> nobody was arguing does patriarchy persist. So then the question is, if what we want as human beings, what we all want are our loving relationships, why do we perpetuate this structure which really poses an impediment? Yeah, I love that. Um, it's such an interesting intersection from the work that I've been doing as a mindfulness teacher and as a trauma uh, student, and I'm really just understanding the sort of physiological bases for um, trying to protect ourselves in terms of safety and, you know, um, as some might call it, the negativity bias or, you know, our sort of desire to really kind of want to pre-know certain things, right? We want to kind of pre-know. That's my little term that's that I've come exactly, up with. Yeah, yeah. Right, that term. I do, I do. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and, and of course, that's the antithesis of being in the now or being in the present or being... Or able, being in relationship where you can't pre-know because there are two people there. Right. It's always that ever-continuous dynamic. And, and when you don't really know um, how to do that with confidence in a boundaryed way um, it, that protects you in a way but leaves open space for there to be a back and forth and relational field of growth, then perhaps the default is to go back into this more shut down, um, protecting against perceived loss, you know, perspective and going along with this structure that um, is sort of like the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, well, I'm so glad that she was fortunate enough to capture your attention and that you were able oh, to write no, this. I mean, as a teacher, that's a dream when a student, you know, basically takes your work and then takes it to a place that you haven't taken it. That's an, that's an amazing experience for a teacher. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, passing the baton, if you will, a little bit in, in a way, although you're very much uh, still in possession of it. Um, well, we wrote our book, which is, I mean, I, what I love about this book is we write it in two voices, you know, because uh, there are sections that are Naomi, and she writes, she writes about the death of her father. I mean, there's no way we could write that in one voice. It's her voice. And then I write about my voice, my experiences, and we go back and forth. And the book sort of evolves as a conversation between the two of us. Yeah, it does. I, I, I attest to that because I enjoyed it. I mean, mine is dog-eared and underscored, and I always take notes in the back. And I got to tell publishers, you got to leave a few blank pages at the back of every book that's published. That's a great idea. Yeah. I, I take notes, and I end up writing them in the glossary and in the references <laughs> and all that because there's a few margins there that I can kind of – but um, that's just a note to publishers that are listening. Um, so let's start with something that you said earlier, which is the feminine voice is really the human voice. Why does it have to be split? It's the human voice. You know, it's so interesting, Francesca, because I started my work, I wrote the essay in a different voice in the 1970s. And between then and now, there's been just a growing consensus that as humans, we are relational responsive beings. I mean, we're born... First of all, we're born with a voice, the ability to communicate our experience. I mean, even before language, babies, they laugh, they cry, I mean, and with a desire and really an ability to engage responsively with others. So these are human capacities and <clears throat> increasingly, I mean, across the human sciences, neuroscientists, anthropologists, so forth, they're saying, you know, that's who we are as humans. And that was 
part of key to our survival as a species is our you know capacity to cooperate and care and and be empathic pick up what other people are feeling and thinking so what's so interesting is when did that get gendered feminine and i mean that's that's where the word patriarchy comes in because this taking of human capacities and saying you know reason is masculine and emotion is feminine or the self is masculine because men are supposed to be able to stand alone and be autonomous and be self-sufficient and women are supposed to be relational and emotional and responsive to other people and we don't really have a voice of our own i mean first of all none of this is true so i mean you know in a sense why would anyone repeat this men think and women feel it's not true men have selves and women have relationships you can't have a relationship if people don't have a self or a voice and neuro neuroscientists say if people separate their their thoughts from their emotions they lose touch with their experience and it's a result of brain injury or trauma that separation so one of the things that I discovered in my research is what had been called development, separating reason from emotion, the mind from the body, the masculine so-called from the quote feminine was in fact a response to injury or trauma. And that's when I started writing about resistance, that children resist this. I, I love that. And I want to get back to that, but I also want to expose um, what you do in the book, um, which is uh, really a very often uh, omitted fact around the Oedipal story with King Laius. So can you um, give us the little repeat there of what he did to put that wheel in motion that nobody talks about? Isn't that amazing? Mm. I mean, it was astonishing to go back and read that the Oedipus story is a trauma story because it starts with Oedipus's father, the king, Laius, <clears throat> sexually abuses a young boy. I mean, this is a sexual abuse story. And what he's told is the god Apollo sends him a message through his oracle that retribution will come in the next generation at the hands of his son. So Laius marries Jocasta, and they have a baby, and they have a son. That's Oedipus. So Laius thinks, oh my God, this son is going to kill me because that will be the retribution for have my having abused a young boy. So he enlists his wife. And I mean, that's really interesting because in this story is the, complicit, the, the complicity of women in patriarchy. He enlists Jocasta to take this infant and abandon him on a hillside to die. And they drive a stake through his foot, which is where the name Oedipus comes from, you know, because means wounded foot and they leave him to die and then you know how the story goes and the chorus the chorus in sophocles play asks how could that queen whom laius won jocasta be silent when that deed was done so you could say what's been read as human nature this murderous aggression and this incestuous desire is not natural. It's a response to trauma. It's a response to trauma. And I think that is so amazing because when we talk about, um, when you, you, you were talking about your 13-year-old um, and all of her awareness around the wisdom being in the, the, the body-mind, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and all of what she had been pushed to, um, you know, sort of force into just the, the brain part, right? The, the education, structural. Well, the, and the, the idea that the education separates the brain from the embodied mind. Right, that there is a separation or that there's the push for a separation externally when she wasn't wanting that or feeling that or feeling... Well, and she says very specifically that in, 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 then you forget your mind, which is, right. you know, yeah. and a lot of mindfulness and all this is to remind us that in fact, I mean, here's what the neuroscientist says, we register our experience, you know, minute by minute, in our bodies and in our emotions. Like, you know, what the, the line, the, to 
we pick up the feeling of what happens. It's how children are in touch or is the music of what happens. That's a line from Shemusini, which then plays in our minds and thoughts. So if we separate our, our, our minds from our bodies or our brains from our embodied minds, we lose touch with our experience. We lose touch, right. And, 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 and that has to benefit someone or some system or something. Well, right? you see, no, I mean, it's so, what's amazing to me is it's become so clear. So if as humans, we are basically, you know, by our very nature, uh, capable of picking up <clears throat> what's going on in the human world around us. I mean, there are these beautiful studies of little babies and how exquisitely sensitive they are to the shifts in relationship. I mean, if somebody stops responding, they pick it up instantly. So if we have this capacity, empathy, cooperation, I mean, this is Sarah Hurdy's work, it's Michael Tomasello's work, it's, it's Franz Duval, it's over and over again. And you want to set up a hierarchy, you have to stunt or knock out these relational capacities. Or the person on the top will start to feel empathy with the person on the bottom. And the person on the bottom will start to say what their experience is. And so if you want, whether, if you want to set up a thing where one group of humans is said to be superior and another inferior, whether on the basis of race or sexuality or religion or caste or class or what you name it, gender, you've got to knock out these relational capacities. And that's what my research picked up first with girls, how there's an initiation <clears throat> that says, as, as my 17-year-old Iris says, if, if you say what you're really feeling and thinking, no one will want to be with you. Your voice will be too loud or seen as stupid or crazy. So in other words, basically saying, if you want to have, quote, relationships, you have to give up on your desire to live with integrity and relationship with yourself and other people. Yeah. And children, children resist them. That's the interesting finding. Yes, and I attest to my resistance as a child. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can all go back and pick up, you know, it's, I mean, really pick up that voice, yeah. And yeah. then it was true of the little boys, too. Of course, of course. And, and it happens at slightly different ages, as you said a little earlier for them, around what, four or five, and women yeah. and girls around 12, 13. Exactly. Uh, and, 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 Which uh, is why women's voices are so important, because it happens later. And it's easier for women to articulate that experience. I mean, for any person at, you know, 11, 12, 13, that it is for a four and five-year-old who will feel it, but doesn't have the language and the conceptual ability that older children have. Yeah, so much to get to. So let me just move this along. So the hierarchy piece, um, I, you know, the reason for having that, the reason why this is perpetuated, I'm just sort of speaking out loud now, why would that be? We're cutting us off from, you know, we're sacrificing relationship, the capacity to be in relationship to ourselves and to others that are meaningful to us. You talk uh, very poignantly about stories, you know, in the book about um, young boys who, you know, were friends and then one, uh, you know, was gay and the other one didn't want to be with a boy who is gay and so he pulled back even though he was his best friend and how he later felt bad about that and that he was sacrificing his most meaningful relationship for this um, place in society quote-unquote relationships that of course did not have any of the um, vulnerability and 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 you know uh, spaciousness and complexity and love and depth that that relationship of his best friend yeah, he said it was the, this was Adam. We start the book with Adam's voice. <clears throat> He's a law student in his 20s. He says it's the greatest regret of his life so far. Right, right. And, and I almost want to say, and this is just me, that a lot of people maybe encounter that in like a marriage, right? Like they have yeah. that, you know, and then they get divorced and they regret it or something. And then they, you know, keep marrying the wrong person later because they haven't resolved the right thing. Anyway, that's my own little Piece. But anyway, so this, this idea of, um, you talk about, uh, it's about resistance. You talk about, you know, the resistance. And then I, I want to get into 
when that when you notice that it's not feeling right, when you notice that there's being cut off, because Dan Teagle talks about integration and establishing a cohesive narrative, everything about mindfulness is about remembering, like member of our corpus, right? Integration, bringing it back together um, and cultivating that sense of wholeness and integration. The resistance, when you're starting to notice this, the resistance is just putting voice to like, hey, that ain't right. That's you know? exactly right. And yet, you know, then you become the troublemaker for saying that. Well, here's so here's what, you know, we make three discoveries in the book, but let me just say the word resistance. I, it was the first thing when I started to write about my work with girls, my first thing I wrote was called joining the resistance. And I thought it's such a beautiful word because, you know, we talk about the immune system that a healthy body resists infection. I mean, you know, that's how. So a healthy psyche resists the loss of basic human capacities. So I, I talked about a healthy resistance to losing vital parts of ourselves. And then how within certain social contexts and structures, patriarchy being one of them, or you could say within oppression, this resistance, this healthy resistance, uh, you know, which is the healthy psyche, it's like the healthy body, becomes a political resistance of children speaking truth to power. And because they're talking about their experience and then they get the pushback of you can't say that or, you know, so forth. Or if you say that, this is what will happen to you. And then it goes into what we call psychological resistance. My graduate students and I meaning a reluctance to even know what you know, the kind of all the kind of shutting down that I'm sure you talk about a lot on your program. Yeah. And what we noticed, Naomi and I, because when she was writing about loss, I said, Naomi, you have to read the literature on loss. And I, you know, said, uh, in, among the people who've written, you know, exquisitely about loss is the psychologist John Bowlby. And he did these beautiful observations of young children separate, you know, like if they went to hospital or during the war when they were sent out of London to, to keep them safe, that the first response to loss is protest. The second response, if the protest is ineffective, is despair. I mean, you sort of give up on the hope that you could reconnect with this person that you've lost. And then where despair leads ultimately is to detachment. And one of the signs of detachment that Bowlby describes is the child becomes more involved with objects than with people. Materialism, yeah. So we said, wait a minute, what Bowlby is describing as the trajectory of response to loss is what my colleagues and I were witnessing among these girls and adolescents of moving from a healthy resistance or a protest, like the 13-year-old, <clears throat> you know, I, I'm going to forget my mind if you push me to, uh, to despair um, and then to detachment. But you know what I think is so interesting about that is if I forget my mind, then I'm going to do materialism, which means I become a consumer, not a citizen. And Isn't not, that interesting? That's right? so we, what I love it. I become a consumer, not a citizen. Right. And, 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 and I move from relational to transactional. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly it. So we made three discoveries in the book. One is that the trajectory of children undergoing this initiation was first a healthy resistance to the loss, and then if that was ineffective, to despair and detachment. Then we said, wait a minute, the ideals of manhood and womanhood under patriarchy, that is the strong, self-sufficient, man who doesn't need anyone to care for him because he's completely, blah, blah, you know. The avoidant attachment archetype. Yeah, that exactly right. That's the ideal of masculinity, autonomous man. And the ideal of femininity is this endlessly sacrificing, caring woman who cares for other people and has no voice, seemingly has no voice for her. Boundaryless. And those are what Bowlby calls pathological responses to loss, meaning responses to loss that become in themselves barriers to finding relationship again. Which is so true, because if you look at what we're talking about, which is attachment theory, John Bowlby obviously studied this 
with Mary Ainsworth because he, his nanny, right, left, and so he was wounded, right? And that, that part, part I don't, that part I don't know, but that would I know that he observed the young children, right? Something sensitized him to right. pick up what was happening to them. Yeah, I think it was. Be, I think if I'm correct, I may not be, but um, I'm sure folks can chime in. It, that, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's, it's that, descriptively accurate. Yeah, that the work was around. So you have the secure attachment, which is when you get you know needs met and you're attuned. You know your early caregivers are attuned to your needs and they can hold that relational space with you good or bad it's good enough rupture and repair you kind of keep coming back all those things that edtronic has shown also in his research right and then and we write about edtronic in our book yes and yes. you know our third discovery was that what patriarchy does is because you mentioned rupture that in relationships we constantly lose touch with ourselves and others and then repair that rupture is patriarchy shames the move to repair Yes. He calls it unmanly. Like to little boy, why do you need, you know, someone to be there for you? Or not what a good woman would do. Like and so you can't even say you're sorry. Yeah, and you and you can't deal with the rupture. So the loss becomes irreparable. And then what we say is then you can set up any form of hierarchy because you've knocked out the human capacities that will basically subvert oppression. Say that again. Well, once you, once you subvert the ability to repair ruptures in relationship, you make loss irreparable. Mm. And once you make the loss irreparable, you undermine these relational capacities. You can set up racism. You can set up homo. Because the human capacities that would repair the rupture that those hierarchies create has been blunted or stunted or shamed. So the person who starts to make a move to undo that is told, why are you, you know, like boys, you know, you're, you're, you're not a little, you're not a baby. Why do you, you know, who needs a mommy? You know, why can't you can take care of yourself? You're a man, you can stand on your own feet. I mean, you can see that in a lot of social policy that, you know, that really is, is, is very unfeeling and un- about people who, in fact, are in need of care, that somehow they shouldn't be. Right. They, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I do. I, I do. Um, and 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 who's who's the worthy, who's the worthy poor and the unworthy poor, so to speak, and who's the worthy? Yeah. Who's worthy of 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 our attention and and exactly. And, I mean, I think there was even a clip yesterday by. Um, Someone who will be unnamed, but has found their way into um, DC politics <laughs> at a very high level, and uh, said that people want don't want to be helped. Uh, you know, yeah, which is just not true. Correct. <laughs> we, we all need help, and we all need. Uh, you what, know. Is, what does it say? You know, we all need all the help we can get. <laughs> right, right, and and then we, we give it we, when we can we give live, it. We live. We're interdependent, and I mean, really, that is becoming so obvious that as human beings. We are interdependent. Our lives are connected to the lives of other people. And that, of course, is the big mindfulness teaching of, you know, everything's sort of causal and, you know, that whole, that whole wheel. So, so when we're looking at this, um, you said it was pathological, this business of essentially insecure attachment, which is ambivalent or avoidant and disorganized, you know, where we end up with these adaptive strategies that we're sort of, you know. Well, and that these are held up as true masculinity and that's the real man and the good woman, the man who doesn't need anybody because he's self-sufficient and he's strong. And I mean, you just have to listen to our president. You can hear this. And the good woman is the woman who cares about other people and is constantly responsive to the needs of others and seemingly has no voice or needs or desires of her own. I mean, that's what's really extraordinary. And we live in then that avoidant sort of pathological construct of society in that way where you cannot then, like you say, repair or come back in a relational way, offer the olive branch, figure it out, do the diplomacy, do the negotiation. Exactly. Um, yeah. That, that needs can be met on both ends. That as I think, I don't remember who first said it to me, but that you can be happy over just being quote unquote right right meaning from your perspective, right? You're not just putting a stake in the ground and this is the only answer, that there can be a negotiation around what's fresh, what's working here now, given this situation, not what 
may have worked, you know, a year ago. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that we start out as infants with the capacity. I mean, in those films that Edtronic does shows where there's a rupture in a relationship, the baby's first move is to repair. And that is our, that's, that's what we call healthy protest. We also call it the anger of hope as opposed to the anger of despair. Right. I wrote that in the back of the book also. I, I loved that. So, so, so what do we do now? I mean, I'm, I'm actually working on a project now um, that's looking at the Equal Rights Amendment again, because as I'm sure you oh, know, right, yeah. you know um, made its way back into um, what people are looking at uh, for, for ratification and passage. And, and we have uh, the political situation that we have right now. And I'm curious to know your thoughts about that and, and, and me too, and all these things around consent and um, a little bit more of the, the current things that are happening right now and how this all pertains to it and how we can shift out of this. Because what we're hearing right now, and what we're seeing right now is there is protest, there is resistance. And how do we sustain that? Or, or where, where, where do we need to, what are we not thinking about there yet? Well, I mean, first of all, the whole, I mean, the drama of democracy, you know, everyone has a voice versus patriarchy, only certain voices are worthless, is playing out right in front of our eyes. I mean, it's right. And what I'm fascinated by right now is the resistors, the healthy resistors, the girls who would not, you know, basically consent to do something which to them was was really incoherent, which is to silence themselves in order to have relationships. I mean, they realized, I mean, my resistors, my girl resistors are in Congress right now. I mean, those women are amazing. I mean, whether you talk about Nancy Pelosi in the Oval Office saying to Donald Trump, thank you, Mr. President, but I'll speak for myself when he said, you know, she's having trouble speaking now. She, she said, don't characterize the strength I bring as the leader of the party that's just won a major victory. So she's saying, I have a voice, you know, don't speak for me. And then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and when somebody started criticizing her Green New Deal, you know, rather than saying, oh, maybe they're right, and they have, she said, wait a minute, you haven't read it. Before you speak to me about it, you have to read it, and then we'll engage. So in other words, women who are not cowed by somebody trying to shame them or, you know, but who basically say, you know, and as Nancy Pelosi said to the woman who talked about Trump as a bully, uh, she said, Nancy Pelosi said, she's using language I wouldn't use, but I'm not in, I'm not a censor and she's not hurting anybody. And that's how people talk these days. And that's very different. So, the, res the resistors are now in the public. And I, I just wrote a piece that's going to come out in the Lo at Los Angeles Review of Books about current men who are making mainstream movies who are like the, the little boys and the fathers that I write about. The so I feel like the resistors are, <laughs> yeah, the guys are making movies, the women are in Congress, I mean, this drama is playing out now. So first of all, I think the book is useful because it gives a framing. You can sort of, it, it allows you, it gives some language to what we're watching. We're watching a battle between democracy and patriarchy. That democracy is aligned with, and I'm sure you'd agree from your own psychological work, uh, having a voice, being able to engage responsively with other people to repair ruptures in relationship the foundation for love and the foundation for democratic citizenship. And that is being, that's threatening patriarchy. And so there's a fight going on. And I think what's important is for people to have a way to understand what we're watching. I mean, to see how, in a sense, insidious those gender, you know, splits and hierarchies of patriarchy, how they undermine the humanity of everyone across the gender spectrum yeah and, and, and everyone and and i wanted to ask you that um i wanted to ask you about 
the women who are in patriarchy, not as complicit and silent as Jocasta was in the myth, but as in the regular day-to-day today, right? And the women who adopt the patriarchal, quote-unquote, masculine position, even if they're gendered as women. And the other thing is, is how this really benefits everyone. Like from old TV language, we would say, what's in it for me? You know, whoever's at home on the couch watching the TV wants to know what it's, what's in it for me if I watch this piece for two minutes. So what's in it for men who are in positions of power, who feel like they have a lot to quote unquote lose if they shift their perspective. And I know Terry Real talks a lot about what's in it for them, but I'm going to let you talk. Yeah. Well, I mean, Terry Real is terrific on this subject. (laughs) He really is. But, you know, I would go back to Adam, where we start our book. And Adam talks about um, that without a conscious thought, that basically, what did he do? He betrayed his own love. I mean, Ali was his best friend. And he felt he, as he said, an ancient framework of patriarchy and manhood, you know, his design, because Adam was a jock and he wanted to be seen as a real man. And he gave up what he really loved, which was, first of all, music, and secondly, his relationship with Ollie. You want to hear a beautiful story. Adam was a student in the same seminar that Naomi, not the same year, but another year. As his final project, he composed and sang a song to Ollie, his friend really talking about his regret for having broken the friendship when he learned Ollie was gay. And Adam says, the culprit was a ghost. It's a force that's not tangible, but, you know, pervasive. That, that, so I think men pay a huge price and they pay it in their intimate relationships and they pay it in the dysfunction of the society. Uh, but I think that they have been told, in a sense, within the patriarchal framework, that they're paying no price. So I think that's very confusing because I think they feel it. And I mean, Adam is a good example. Right, right. You can't betray your own body-mind. And, and, and when you do, and all that suppression or denial, oftentimes it shows up psychosomatically and other kinds of things or addictions yeah. or compulsions that... Um, I mean, look, look right now. Look at the level of violence in our society. I mean... You know, I mean, all the school shooters are white boys. Look, you know, look at the opioid addiction and the men who are dying from these addictions. So to say men are not suffering, I mean, it's just not true. Well, and and I think that this connects back to this business of materialism and the consumer because it's serving someone. It's serving industry. It's serving that hierarchical industry. it's It's also serving what men are told they need to do to be seen as men. And I think it to say, I mean, I think reading this book says to men, you're, you know, here's a way of looking at, you're told that this is what you have to do to be a man and so forth, but here's the cost that, that, that you're paying. And I also think that to contrast patriarchy with democracy, which is the real contrast, because within patriarchy, you know, people will say, well, the opposite of patriarchy is matriarchy, where women dominate. And the answer is no. It's not to have another hierarchy, you know, putting the bottom on the top. It's to have a different structure that allows people to address human problems, you know. Right voice and in relate. I mean, it's all the things. No, it reminds me of what Gloria Steinem told me, you know, we're, 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 we're linked, we're not ranked and, and matriarchy is a ranking and that's not what we're talking about. It's not what we're talking about, no. Yeah. And so what about the women who adopt this um, quote unquote patriarchal masculine stance? I mean, we see them in corporate America. We see them in educational institutions. You know, anybody can be. Listen, you haven't even mentioned the most controversial. They're the women who voted for Trump, the white women. Well, 51%, 53%, you know, and I go back to the Oedipus story. Patriarchy couldn't continue without the, without the buy-in of women. I mean, so why are we surprised by this? But I mean, I think also this book offers women. It says, wait a minute, this is not where you started. This is not where any of us started. I mean, <laughs> if you start to read novels written by women, they almost, you know, the novels of growing up, they tend not to start in 
you know, infancy like David Copperfield or Portrait of the Artist, they tend to start with a ten, nine or 10 or 11 year old girl. So, I mean, I love this example, Jane Eyre. I mean, we forget this at the beginning of Charlotte Bronte's novel, her aunt Reed calls her a liar. And 10 year old Jane Eyre says, you say I'm a liar, I'm not. If I were a liar, I would say I love you and I don't. And you think, wait a minute. And then Aunt Reed says children should be corrected for their faults and she says the seed is not my fault. And then you have the film, Wajda, I don't know if you saw it, the first full length feature film to come out of Saudi Arabia, you know, where girls can't ride bicycles and women can't drive. It features a 10 year old girl, Wajda. Wajda wants a bicycle. And the film is about how in the end, her mother helps her to get the bicycle she wants. Yeah. So this is, this is a human voice is what I'm saying that, it, you know, and if you want to maintain a patriarchal order, you have to silence that voice. Right. And so, and it's the voice of connection and, and, you know, from the mindfulness or, or meditation sort of Eastern connection, as I know that, you know, having worked, as you said, as a teaching assistant with Richard Alford, AKA Ram Dass back in the day at Harvard. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that we're really, you know, he's exploring consciousness, of course, but the the whole idea is is that when we remember and re come back to our own direct experience, what we know to be true for our own precise, fresh, direct experience, that our body knows, our body mind knows what's right or what's wrong, what feels right or not, what's off or not. And it's sort of like the way that the, uh, you know, the elephants ran to the hills when the tsunami hit. Yeah, no, know? but that's, it's how animals know, it's how babies know. I mean, you know, if, if a, you have a young child in a room and the adults are upset, the, the child picks up what's going on, even though the child doesn't necessarily have a lot of language, but you feel it. I mean, it's, it's exactly, yeah. It's so that's in the ether and it's in the air. And, and as humans, we're so sensitive. I mean, in the beginning, and the question is, you can encourage that sensitivity, you can educate that sensitivity, you can develop it, or you can stunt it. Right. And in naming it can be a threat to the system, the family system, if you name incest, the family system, if you name, you know, sort of alcoholism or, you know, or stoicism to the degree that there's not a lot of connection and, you know, human touch. Well, and I mean, you know, I teach Judy Herman's A Forgotten History about how, you know, it gets named people and then suddenly everybody knows about it. And then suddenly there's this forgetting of it. And it's as though it, it, people never knew. So I feel like this is another moment where things that have not been talked about are suddenly being talked about. And uh, in that sense, it's it's... It's both, it's a time of, of great concern because, I mean, we really have patriarchy and power in this country right now. I mean, in, in, the, in the White House, in the Senate and so forth, but we also have the resistance in, in the public sphere. And so I think it's really, I mean, I, I would, I'd like to believe that our book is helpful, almost like giving people a guide Oh, I think it is. Yeah, no, for sure. Because this is, it's an explainer of where we are now, where we've been, and also sort of all of the reasons that we, you know, came to be personally and, um, you know, structurally. And before we close, because we're, we're at the end of our time, um, would you mind touching on the Equal Rights Amendment and its, and its recent uh, sort of research? Well, I, you know, I honestly think of, I mean, I thought, you know, Hillary Clinton said it, you know, women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. And so it's, it's, it's very puzzling to me, what is the argument about the Equal Rights Amendment? I don't, I don't see that, you know, I don't see that that's something to argue about. Of course, when we talk about human rights. I mean, women are human beings. And I mean, you know, what we're talking about is patriarchy persists because in a sense, it de its persistence depends on going after and stunting basic human capacities, you know, in everybody. 
And I think the encouraging thing and the optimistic thing is this capacity for resistance, like the healthy body. And from the work I did, you know, with girls and then with young boys and their fathers, and then with Terry Real, who you mentioned, we saw couples together for a while. And it was so interesting because Terry would listen for the voice of trauma. He has such a good ear for that. And I would listen in men for where is the emotionally intelligent, sensitive four, five-year-old boy. The boy who says to his mother, mama, why do you smile when you're sad? I mean, who reads emotions. And where in every woman, I would say, somewhere in this woman is the honest, perceptive, 10-year-old, 10, 11-year-old girl. You know, the one who says, if I were a liar, I'd say I love you and I don't. Mm. I mean, you know, who just says what she really feels. And thinks. <laughs> right, right. And that's, it. That. that's in all of us. I mean, that's, who, that's where we start. So I find that as, as, and Naomi and I, in our book, that's the optimism is, the, the, the resi- you know, the resistance is there. And the healthy protest and the anger of hope I mean, to encourage these, to recognize them and to respond to them, not try to discourage them. Yes, and to move through that, to do as Adam did, is to move through that process of grief, right? Sometimes it's to grieve and then it's to re, um, reinitiate the, um, the spark, if you will, and that reconnection. And, and I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's not just one or the other, it's both and, it's, the, it's, the, it's, it's all of it. It's the whole well, catastrophe, yes. as we like to say. <laughs> to feel the loss, Mm-hmm. To register the loss and the sadness around it. And then as I think, you know, and to respond to it by, by protest, you know, by trying to repair it, by moving to repair. Right. And, and not getting caught up in the shame that's put on you around that attempt exactly. at repair. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Well, we're going to, um, I think, leave it there for time reasons. Not that we couldn't speak forever about all of these things, but I really appreciate it. The book is uh, Carol Gilligan uh, with Naomi Snyder. Why does patriarchy persist? It is um, an excellent book. And uh, of course, Carol has a million other books and is is active and I'm looking forward to your new publication you said I think in the LA review um, yeah also so uh, anything else you'd like to add before we close for the afternoon no just to call attention to that terrific cover which was done by a woman which that someone took a is it a pink crayon or pink lipstick and tried to scratch the word patriarchy out and it keeps coming through and I thought that's just it's great. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, just to, just to hold it up again and look at that and, 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 and highlight what you're talking about um, because it is stubborn, right? Yeah, because, it's, yeah. And, and that that's the question is, how come? I mean, people try to scribble it out and to get rid of it, and yet it persists. So we really, we really need to understand that so we can, in fact, you know, realize both in our personal lives, our desire to have real relationships, to really love and be loved and to be seen and to speak and so forth. And in our democracy, to really realize what is the challenge of democracy, which is we all have a voice. We all have a voice. And thank you, Dr. Carol Gilligan, for sharing your amazing voice and work with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. It was beautiful.